0: from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 23. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. Today, we're talking about coaching and team building. Uh, There's different experiences that matt and i have had on this topic but since this is matt's full-time job i think it's probably good to let you do most of the heavy lifting on this one matt all right yeah we've talked a, a bit about coaching strategies in the past particularly strategies for learning and mental models for social situations but i think this is an important enough enough topic that we can actually do a full episode on it so hopefully this is something that you guys find useful there are a lot of different ways that coaching and team building are relevant to jujitsu maybe we can talk about some of the different contexts where this comes up matt i guess the first thing is becoming a coach you know most of us start off jujitsu just doing jujitsu and then at some point um, we kind of evolve into this teacher role and that can be different depending on uh, what direction you take but at the bare minimum you're probably providing some degree of knowledge to the more junior people in class going above and beyond that you know you might actually take over some degree of of teaching you might do one-on-ones at the the bare minimum you're probably giving pointers to the people in class and of course you know it, it gets to the point too where if you're really involved you can be coaching at tournaments and teaching seminars as well matt maybe we can talk about that initial transition though uh, going from a practitioner to a coach Um, what what do you think is really kind of the the steps that you have to take to go down that road you know if what are the things that you would look for in someone to say that you know you've kind of gone beyond practitioner level and you now have the attributes that would make you a coach uh i mean it's a great question
1: and you know us both being black belts we definitely have gone through this transition where you know at one point you were just trying to struggle to survive and then as you reach the purple brown belt levels you start becoming somewhat of a mentor to people in the class and uh you know by osmosis you kind of become that coach figure even if you're you know strictly a competitor or whatever you're still kind of you're there to help in in a small way, right? I don't know many higher level ranks that aren't expected or don't embrace the role of of uh, helping in the classroom with some of the lower ranks, even if being an instructor isn't really your priority. But um, first, I would say that the qualities that someone would need to display for uh, to become a high-ranked coach or you know one of the more senior people in the class that's going to take an instructing role um, I mean I think the first thing is consistency uh, I, I want to see someone who's there you know at least five six days a week if possible because you know that they're really living the jiu-jitsu lifestyle they're really thinking about it even when they're at home they do some studying they they love the sport uh, they probably already work another job and the, you know they're trying to trying to fit in time to train every day as well as working you know a full job and i've done that before and it's really hard so definitely i uh someone who's consistent and really embraces the jiu-jitsu life is is someone that i would want first as a coach and obviously there's the character traits like you know being personable being kind uh outgoing knowledgeable willing to share the knowledge all these things they all add up to someone who would be a fantastic instructor um And yeah of course like like I said personal someone who's you know not intimidating to be around but uh and of course on the technical side needs to be comprehensive with jiu-jitsu needs to be able to teach jiu-jitsu and uh the new this never used to be a standard for me before when I was a purple belt because I didn't know but the the alignment concepts and lever mechanic concepts and everything like that those for me those have to be a
0: prerequisite now for anyone that I want to teach so, something that we talked about in earlier episodes was how once you become one of the more senior people in your gym, you get a lot of benefit by raising the level in the room. When you're one of the more junior people, you can absorb information like a sponge from everyone you're training with. But when you become more senior, it is in your best interests to encourage the growth of the people around you because that's going to result in them giving you more resistance, which is going to make you better at jujitsu. And to me, that really realization is one of the important things that means you're on the way to becoming a coach you know once you start realizing that you're gonna you could theoretically get more in investing the people around around you than you would in investing just in yourself that kind of understanding of you know contributing back to the team is one of the things that from a mindset standpoint i think means you're you're on the path to becoming a coach
1: yeah of course there's going to be people out there who are strictly competitors and don't have an interest in being an instructor just like there's people who have no interest in competing and enjoy instructing um i think that to have you know to have the best understanding of jiu-jitsu uh, re- part of that re- uh, requires you to also be able to pass the knowledge on and for me you know jiu-jitsu is my job i have a true passion for instruction and also competing but i understand that's not natural for everyone but like you said investing in your own team and building your team up building up the people around you not only does it uh Not only does it make you feel really great and fulfilled, but it also does raise the level in the room. So as a competitor, you'll benefit, you know, and and you're basically creating an investment in the people around you and, you know, and it helps you in the
0: end and another thing when it comes to coaching this doesn't mean that you necessarily need to be a formal instructor of the class if you're coaching you know coaching can just be a casual one-on-one thing where you help people learn this can be as simple as someone asks you a question and you answer it right you know coaching can establish more formal roles where you take on teaching responsibilities but anyone regardless of their experience level has the capacity to be a coach if they're interested in doing so and i think to it's kind of, it's inevitable that at some point you're going to get some exposure with this kind of educational experience in jiu-jitsu it just comes down to how much of that responsibility you want to take on as part of your training yeah and there's no doubt for me that
1: um becoming a, an instructor myself and becoming a teacher helped me understand jiu-jitsu way better um it really helped progress my game as a as a practitioner and as a competitor and i i find the same thing happens for my students when they start to acquire enough knowledge and experience that they can now pass information on i see really great improvements in their game as well so you know it's you really want to make sure that your students aren't just good at jujitsu; they're not just good at competing but that they can uh efficiently and correctly pass on the
0: knowledge to other people it reminds me of that quote from einstein where if you can't explain something simply you don't understand it well enough and i I think that's very applicable to jiu-jitsu there are a lot of situations where you might think that you understand how something works in jiu-jitsu but when you have to try to explain it to someone you really struggle because it's hard to put it to words and usually that means that you don't fully understand it to the extent that you could this is one of the benefits of teaching is that it forces you to think things through from the bottom up and that can be a really good learning opportunity it can force you to approach things that you've taken for granted from a new angle sometimes i realize things about techniques or strategies that i never thought of before simply because someone asked me a question Mm -hmm. and in trying to answer the question i had to think things through in a level of depth that i normally don't right You, you know when you've trained something and drilled something so many times eventually it gets to the point where you're not thinking about it anymore which is good that's what you want you want to be able to drill this stuff into your muscle memory but the problem is once you've kind of drilled something into your muscle memory it means that a lot of the time you're not really actively thinking about what you're doing anymore and sometimes you that denies you the opportunity to kind of add new details or or punch holes in your game and that's where teaching actually can really help because it it does force you to go back and analyze that stuff especially if your students are good enough to ask you questions like why did you just do that Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. i love that question because sometimes the answer is i don't know why (laughs) i just did that maybe that wasn't
1: actually a good thing for me to do yeah one of my one of my pleasures as being a teacher is having students question why i would teach something a certain way or why i like to do something this way what's what's my thoughts on this it really you know forces you to break down everything and and sort of reanalyze why we do things and as a result you know pretty much the only result as long as you don't have an ego is improvements are to be made if you're one of those people that hates being questioned and you know you think that you know everything i mean you're probably not a high level
0: instructor yeah or even honestly a high level practitioner i would say right i mean if you don't have that kind of beginner's mind where you're open to feedback and open to learning it's going to hinder your growth in anything but it's going to be especially difficult for you to succeed as a coach or instructor a red flag for me is when someone is teaching something and they are Absolutely, 100 percent confident in the conviction of what they're saying and they think they have the answer to everything or you ask them a question or challenge them and they just think it's ridiculous that this technique might not work right um some instructors do that where they just seem so confident in what they're saying that um you know it, they it seems like they're just talking like this move is an inevitability and there's no way that they could be missing a detail or misunderstanding something or you ask them well what if person the person does this and they say oh that would never work or something like That, right? You know, uh, someone who has a a beginner's mind and is inquisitive and curious about learning should always be willing to have their ideas challenged. And one of the benefits of being a coach is you open yourself up to a situation where a room full of people want to challenge your ideas and that can make you a lot better at the end of the day um, but as a good coach i think it's critical to cultivate that beginner's mind in in yourself and in your students so that everyone is curious and wants to learn and ask questions yeah and i'll,
1: and I'll be honest when i when i was first becoming an instructor i think it was a purple belt when i started actually teaching classes um this is way before i knew about posture structure base frames levers all those all the main concepts that really build up the foundation of my game and my instruction now um you know when i was new to teaching i was just honestly every class i was just trying not to sound like a complete jackass (laughs) you're trying not to be embarrassed you know and you're worried about little things like that now i've had times where uh i'm teaching class now and you know i have a few really good uh white now they're blue belts but they'll you know i'll teach something then after they'll be like hey matt like what do you think of this and they add on to the technique and i you know when we when we meet up for the next technique i'm like okay we all got to talk about this for a sec because uh you know so and so just pointed out this uh they just pointed out this detail that i think is really important that i missed or whatever so having that uh you know where you really don't you truly don't have an ego and you don't let Somebody's uh, suggestions or questions disrupt the learning lesson um, You can really learn from anyone, right? Mm-hmm. And uh... If you can look at it instead of being, you know, trying not to get embarrassed to you're all just there to learn together and, you know, you take the role that nobody, nobody knows everything completely. It's a lot more uh, less stressful for yeah. everyone. And it's a lot more fun to be an instructor when you're like that. You definitely don't want to go into an instruction and think that you need to have all the answers. Um, you, you know, you need to have a perfect lesson plan. You got to stick to a tight schedule. Truthfully, being a good instructor means that you can adapt on the fly Mm -hmm. that because a lot of the time when i'm i'll think about what i want to teach that evening or that week and then i go in and the level of the room is completely different from what i had envisioned in my mind so now i on the fly right before class i have to adjust things i want to do different warm-up drills because there's certain people in the class that are newer or i want to you know i want to i feel like i can do something else that's more advanced because i see that other people have shown up so you know going in with a a concrete lesson plan isn't always the best strategy if you're new to instruction but you definitely have to have some idea of what you want to teach and then be able to adapt on the fly it's, it's just it's
0: a lot like jiu-jitsu basically yeah, it's like the quote you know you you want to have a plan but you want to know that no plan survives first contact with the enemy right is it's exactly the same here uh you know what i've also heard that that you know presentation is 10 percent preparation and 90 percent theater and i think that's absolutely the case you know it's it's not about having the perfect game plan documented for your class it's about being able to adapt on the fly to the needs of the people in the room it's the same if you're doing public speaking or giving a presentation It's the exact same when you're teaching a class Um, and i think that one of the big breakthroughs you need to have from a, a mindset standpoint is is understanding that the role of a good coach is not to be the fountain of knowledge like your, your job is not to be the guy who knows everything your job is to be a facilitator of learning that that doesn't mean you know everything you might not know anything but it means that your job is to manage the conversation about how learning happens and get that information or figure it out alongside the people in the class you, you might not be the one with the answers but your job is to work with the class to find those answers or if you can't then to get back to them next time um, and that, that could be hard to do right because our, our egos don't want us to to admit that we don't know something especially when we're supposed to be the instructor Um, that's why you know this comes down to psychological safety right we want to have an environment where everyone feels confident asking questions they know you're not going to be made fun of or shot down everyone knows that it's okay to not know things Um, this this is a very important dynamic for any sort of team structure where you never want to have a group where people are afraid to ask questions because they think they're going to be made fun of or they're they're going to get defensive You want to have a room where people are willing to, in a, in a friendly way, challenge ideas for the purpose of coming up with the best answer together. Um that's that's super important as an instructor and one of the things i like about jujitsu is we don't really well at, at some point we do but we don't really generally use terms like master right like i don't call my my instructor master um, some people do. some some people do Um and, and i mean to be fair once you get to red and black you're supposed to but generally speaking we say you know coach or professor or you know maybe crazy idea just call a person by their name <laughs> right yeah. you know we um we we don't really have that kind of like authoritative structure in jiu and that's one of the things that i think jiu-jitsu does very well if you're expected to be a master it's very hard for you to admit that you don't know anything because you feel like you're not living up to the label but if you're a coach it's a lot easier to admit that you're not perfect
1: yeah and i i think professor is actually portuguese for teacher i could be wrong about that but um I don't insist that people call me professor or coach. I mean, kids is one thing because I think that it, uh, you're teaching kids discipline at that age. You're trying to instill character and certain values. So I understand kids addressing you by uh, by a certain title, but I feel that uh, there's something pretentious about making parent parents and and uh you know your adult students call you master or master i think is the most pretentious one yeah also professor and sir and coach and things like that i mean we're all adults here it's yeah. a business you know i but then again my school is not super formal there's lots of there's lots of schools that are really mm-hmm. formal different martial arts are more formal so i understand the uh that there is a, di- uh, a cultural difference there mm-hmm. um and i i definitely expect more discipline out of my kids than I do out of my, uh, adult
0: students yeah i am i understand that to some people the structured discipline of certain martial arts is very helpful to them but i honestly find it kind of distracting and i i'm not i'm never really a fan of giving someone like an honorific that implies they're better than you right you know yeah. calling someone like master is like that that's just kind of gross really honestly it's adults you're a racist yeah, <laughs> adults shouldn't think <laughs> about people in that manner right you know you shouldn't it it's crazy especially to call someone master just because they've got a lot of practice pajama wrestling like really for yeah. crying out loud like yeah. you know even what,
1: professor yeah even is professor is a
0: bit like you're you know i, I really prefer to uh, to work with people and not rank or authority right even even the belt system i think is a little bit much um i i personally find that people are more likely to open up and ask questions and contribute to the group if you don't have people who are hiding behind rank or authority and so in that sense i i personally don't like the whole professor. Thing I mean that said I prefer it over master but it I find that it can be a distraction and it can kind of you know it, it I worry sometimes that it prevents people from really engaging with the group because they feel there's there's this like power structure that they can't go against
1: yeah and it reinforces that power structure whereas I'd rather just be I'd rather be in a training environment where it's more like a a group of friends or even you know if you want to use the word family uh you can but it, mm-hmm. I mean it, it's not really a family it's a business where people are paying it's money team, to learn right? it's a team yeah and. Uh, an organic team where everyone's on the same level I find is much more enjoyable than an atmosphere where I'm the master, you're the student, you know, um, and I'm on a different level from you because like that's just I find it's an unnecessary hierarchy hierarchy uh that is established and enforced yeah so. and
0: you know j- even just from a selfish perspective having that kind of hierarchy is going to hinder your growth because people won't question you and as we've already established repeatedly if if you're not challenged and and confronted with difficult situations you don't have growth opportunities so yeah. you really need people to be willing to ask questions of you and we've talked in the past about how jujitsu is at its best when it's like a laboratory and i think that that's actually one of the reasons why i think professor is kind of a, you know it's a better title than some of the alternatives but i think that the less hierarchy you've got the more likely you are to have people treat the art like a laboratory
1: yeah and back to what you were saying about um uh, being a teacher is sort of, you know what what did you say? Ten percent
0: ten percent preparation, ninety percent
1: theater. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, the way Rob talks about it is is being an instructor, it is a presentation, right mm-hmm. You go do a seminar, it's a presentation. You go teach a class, it's a presentation. It's even more so when you're teaching the kids because you do have to be a bit more theatrical and you really have to simplify things, right? So uh, being an instructor, the goal isn't to give them all the information. In fact, that's one of the biggest mistakes that I see a lot of instructors mm-hmm. make. I used to make that that problem. I'd go and teach a class and we're doing way too many techniques, right? It's it's more important to know how much to give the students. Don't give them so much that they're, you know, they can't remember anything. Uh, structure it in such a way that the knowledge gets retained within the students. Make sure that you can, you know, you can be that medium that uh, transfers the knowledge to your students effectively. And the way Rob deals with it is you know if if people in here don't get something it's not your fault it's my fault Mm -hmm. for not portraying that information to you in such a way that you can absorb it right and um and uh sometimes you'll see practitioners or competitors that are amazing in competition but as instructors they lack a lot of crucial crucial traits that allow them to be really successful instructors and you see this a lot you see this with some of the highest level grapplers in the world um and it comes down to not only the understanding of mechanics and concepts but uh the the actual presentation of being an instructor and sometimes language barrier does mm-hmm. play its role as well but definitely there's a difference between being really good at jujitsu and being really good at teaching jujitsu
0: yeah you know I, I think what you've described there is a, a very important takeaway whenever you need to teach someone something complicated you, you need to understand that you can't give people all of the information all at once and expect them to process it like you know yeah. you need to build in you need to kind of do this in layers and in steps we talked in the past about incremental learning where you know you people aren't computers you can't just like copy and paste all of this knowledge from my brain to yours I might need to take baby steps I may need to to start off with just the very simplest ideas and then at some point I'm gonna to start to see the limitations of the move myself and encounter issues myself and that's when I'm ready for the next step um, we had a a seminar actually yesterday with my instructor and it it was kind of funny because it was a group of people that he wasn't super familiar with so i I get he didn't really know exactly what the level in the room was and we started off by talking about um you know one particular move and then he realized okay we got to dial this down a little bit and talk about something more fundamental so we started talking about like framing and using your hips and then after a few minutes of that he realized okay well you know we got we're gonna have to adjust this again let's just go back even further and and talk about something even more fundamental like how to pin somebody. And, um, that, that kind of. Uh, That kind of thinking requires you to be able to pay attention to what's happening in the room and adjust your lesson on the fly Mm -hmm. so that the people who are there are going to get the most benefit out of what you're presenting. Because if you're at like step 10 and people are still struggling at step one, you're wasting everyone's time. There's no shame in going back and covering basics or fundamentals, even if people should technically already know these things, right? Or at least you think they should. I mean, in this example I'm giving, like this was a room full of like, you know, black, brown, purple belts. And still we were going over base fundamental stuff uh, because we felt that there was something to get out of it so Mm -hmm. that's really important to understand when you're when you're teaching is you've got to monitor uh what your students are absorbing and if they're at the level where they can absorb the kind of complexity you're presenting
1: and i also think there's something to be said about if you're the main instructor overlooking everything uh we've discussed in the past about how it's kind of uh you 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 kind of have to make the sacrifice in this case because people are getting their repetitions and you're just kind of watching you can't really do the repetitions um and still have eyes on everyone right mm-hmm. it's, it's hard enough to watch everyone you can usually only come around to a few a few different pairs and at a time you can't watch the whole class but you certainly can't do that if you're trying to get repetitions yourself so mm-hmm. being an instructor does involve a level of sacrifice um where you're going to sacrifice your own experience and repetitions for other people to enjoy uh and definitely you know walking around is something i say is really important because the work i think the one of the last things you want to do as an instructor is sit in one area of the room near the same people and just watch them drill while other people are you know you, they could be missing crucial details so you do have to move around the room see who's getting it who's not getting it um and then you know add your criticisms when when you may and another thing is when do you if I see people doing a a technique do I stop them right then and there and correct them or do I let them screw it up notice that maybe several people are making this mistake regroup at uh after the you know maybe maybe we're drilling a technique for five minutes and then i see this mistake keeps happening over and over and over again do i stop them in the middle of the of the timer and and tell them to do it differently this way or should we should i wait until after the timer is done then regroup as a class talk about what went wrong collectively and then do another five minutes on top so that people can make adjustments Mm -hmm. so there's you know as an instructor I i i used to try to correct people on the spot as soon as i'd see something wrong i'd correct it and i found out man i'm doing a lot of correcting Mm -hmm. like i'm almost i feel like i'm probably becoming annoying to some of these people so i i started just Letting people make the mistakes. Let them make the mistakes. See if they can figure it out on their own. And then incremental learning comes in and I, I layer in the, the new details again. And hopefully when we do it the next time, they've made adjustments.
0: Yeah. The trick is not to like spoon feed information yeah. to people like they're babies. You don't want to rather... nitpick.
1: Necessarily. Yeah. You,
0: you give them enough information that they can hit the roadblock like there's always a roadblock right so you give them enough information that they hit the wall and the limits of what they can do with that knowledge so eventually they're going to hit some what-if scenario or something they're struggling with and once they start to feel that struggle that means it's time for the next bit of information so rather than you just parceling out information step by step you kind of have to wait to see when people are ready for that next level and the sign they're ready for that next level of info is you start to see that struggle in them where they're kind of like getting frustrated that they can't do it and that means they're ready and receptive and they understand why they now need this next step yeah okay so we've talked a bit about teaching um you know in a class dynamic matt from your perspective in a one-on-one situation so either what and this doesn't necessarily mean when you're doing a private even but just if you're rolling with someone and you want to you want to contribute and help them Mm -hmm. is there anything different in that situation versus how you would do things in a group setting or are they fundamentally the same from your perspective
1: i mean fun the fundamentally the jujitsu and the concepts stay the same all the alignment concepts posture structure base frames wedges levers those that's the filter that i run every question through every problem every situation where i'm unclear about something i run it through that filter and i look for the free lever i look for the the broken alignment that's it it pretty much every time gives me the answer that is most obvious uh that's why it's such a great system to have if you haven't used this already please check out our alignment uh you know on the database and also on the the episodes that we've talked about alignment again with something we're going to just forever mention because it's such a valuable tool but uh the jujitsu stays the same but when you're one-on-one with someone you know you're no longer pandering to a whole group it's more now that you're paying attention to the problem that that one person is giving you so maybe they have a specific question about you know why is my guard getting passed or how do or what the classic one what's a good escape from side control i mean really let's talk about what's causing the problem the real problem is you're getting your guard passed Mm -hmm. and usually that begins in the engagement phase right which we've discussed so many times so winning the engagement phase battle will later on pay dividends when it comes time to escaping bad positions because you prevent those bad positions from happening Mm -hmm. Um, as an instructor when i'm asked a question one-on-one from a student i really need to i need to assess the problem and i need to assess the cause of the problem then i need to think about what are some steps that we can come come up with moving forward that are going to put our put the person on the right track to getting some actual results and preventing these problems from keep from continuously mm-hmm. happening you know or maybe i'm i'm going for these leg locks and and i you know my partner always escapes well wh- let's put me in put me in the 411 and show me your okay your wedges are off that's mm-hmm. why what about are you are you uh are you going for the heel hook right away well you're not controlling the free leg so as a result i'm allowed to get in base i'm allowed to spin out of this position and and escape so if you you know if you do the proper wedging and you control the free leg you're in a position of control now we can start to get the leg lock so working things backwards sometimes one-on-one is really sometimes i think the best way to expose holes in your game uh in, your, in the person's game and then come up with solutions
0: yeah yeah i th- i think another thing to use in your toolbox when you're teaching on an individual level you can pay a lot more attention to the learning style of the person that you're training with whereas within a within a group you're kind of limited because you know everyone has different learning styles and you kind of you can't really cater to this when you're talking to a group of 20 people at once but when you're working with someone on a one-on-one basis you need to understand exactly how that person is best suited learning and understand that not everyone is going to learn best by drilling the same thing dozens of times right i mean for me personally I learn best when I talk things through and I think about things. Like I i I don't think everyone is like this, but if you ask me to just drill something a hundred times, I won't necessarily get better at it. But if you spend five minutes just sitting down and explaining something to me and letting me ask questions and answering it, then I a lot of the time I can pull the technique off the first time. Like it's it's something where I just it's kind of like a more analytical approach where some you know some people are more visual learners, some people are more oral learners, some people are kinetic learners, they have to do things and some people need to think things through like there's there's a lot of different ways to learn and you never want to assume that the person you're talking to is going to learn best the same way that you learned um you know this is something that you need to. if if the person is struggling with the approach you're taking maybe try a different approach you know try or or you could even start asking them questions to kind of pry more information about their mindset out of their head rather than you being them asking you a question and you providing feeling forced to provide an answer you can turn it around and ask them questions about what feels right what feels wrong what they're struggling with and that's the best way i think a lot of the time to to know how to serve that person most effectively
1: yeah creating and we'll talk about this i think we're going to talk about teaching kids pretty quickly here. yeah 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 um creating a dialogue between the instructor and the class is a really great way to keep people focused and mm-hmm. especially i find with children it's really good because when you're teaching kids you're not just teaching them martial arts you're teaching them to listen you, you know can you stand on a wall for for three minutes and listen to instruction and then i'll i'll ask okay i want someone to demonstrate what i just shown and then it's amazing how many kids weren't actually listening right so from the then on it sometimes it sets sort of a a trigger in the kid's head that hey i might get quizzed on this later i better listen Mm -hmm. up because i don't want to look like i I don't know what i'm talking about same thing for adults i I like to ask questions you know i'll be showing something and i'll say okay who can tell me why i would want to put my head here or who who can tell me where my base is right now or where 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 could which way could i possibly be swept and then now we're reverse engineering the uh, posture structure based concepts into the students so that they can actually identify it on their own. You know, if you can do that, then essentially they'll be able to plug that into uh hopefully any scenario and then use it as a as an ongoing tool i'm trying to like you're trying to teach them how to fish like you said you don't really want to spoonful uh, spoon feed them the
0: information um they need to come to you asking what you know they, if, if i give you 10 answers and i say here's step one here's an answer step two here's an answer step three here's an answer that's kind of overwhelming and without context but if i give you step one and then you come back to me with the question then i'm re- then you're ready for me to give you step two and it means that the learning dialogue is back and forth forth rather than one directional and that's always going to be more effective for sure yeah it's, it's almost kind of in some ways like um it's not really socratic learning right socratic learning is when you basically ask you know you, can, you kind of use questions as a, as a basis to learn but in this case it's like you're trying to get the other person to want to ask that question yeah. you want you want to let them feel the pain caused by the limits of their knowledge yes and then you want them to start asking you questions you need to draw that out of them because that kind of inquisitiveness first of all it's, it's just good learning habits but also it means that that person is more likely to be interested in and retain that knowledge once you give it to them mm-hmm yeah cool um in terms of uh one-on-one situations you know uh anything else matt that you want to add on that topic in terms of like how to deal with people from a one-on-one basis um i i find one-on-one is always in
1: a way, it's easier than teaching a class because you can focus your information, uh, you focus your attention on one person. But in another way, like if it's a private, I think you, it's harder. You, yeah, yeah. It, it could also be qu- quite difficult because yeah. you know you, now you're on the spot. You really have to, especially when people are paying you for your time. The last thing I want is for someone to do a private with me and then come away yeah. thinking that it wasn't worth it or that I didn't help them. Right. So, well,
0: well, not just that, but I find that in one-on-one situations, you tend to go into a lot more depth, right? Because you're basically going down the rabbit hole with that person when you're when you're in a group setting you normally normally there's one high level thing that you want everyone to achieve but when you're catering to one person they might take things in a very different direction you know if you start asking me about like um instep guard or something yeah maybe i can answer your question but if we keep going going down that road we might wind up talking about single leg x or you know leg drag sweeps or weird things that um i didn't expect to be talking about so you can there's a level of depth that you can get into when you're dealing with an individual person versus a group um in that for that reason i find it's often more challenging to deal with just one-on-one because it's not just like a question and answer but it's a series of questions that tend to come up that build on the previous one and you wind up kind of like building a like a tower of knowledge in this one meeting with a person right Mm -hmm. yeah one-on-one you can definitely i think you can cover far more knowledge yeah 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 okay cool so on on that topic i mean we you alluded to this earlier matt but when it comes to coaching children now um you know other than having a child i'm not particularly an expert in coaching children in a jujitsu standpoint but i know that you've been doing this for a while let's talk about this a bit like what what is different when you're coaching children versus coaching adults i think the main thing that's different is just uh the attention spans are
1: is the main difference um when you're teaching a room full of adults they're they're there to learn they're paying you to learn they want to learn uh they want the knowledge when you're teaching kids
0: the parents are paying the yeah. parents want the kids yeah. to learn the parents want that exactly <laughs> yeah. like a
1: lot of the time they don't want to be there and yeah. uh and it can be a struggle especially for some kids to keep them motivated you know they, they they do a few reps and then they just literally lie there limp or they're in the middle of a match uh or a middle of a sparring session and then they just give up on you right and it's your job as a coach to constantly push them along constantly keep them motivated uh and keep them moving honestly from a physical point of view and from a, a hypothetical point of view and and it can be really tough because teaching children you definitely
0: you need to shave the level of details probably by 75% as mm-hmm. compared to adults yeah yeah it's a good example of incremental learning when you're dealing with children you have to start with just the base level information and you have to understand that you're dealing with a child right someone who might not have the attention span or the ability to think at a complex level so that they can understand these really difficult concepts you got to be willing to give them what they can handle yeah kids learn at such an amazing rate and they're like little sponges but
1: at the same time they they still don't have the same awareness or uh coordination as most adults so they're still learning how to move learning you know if i some kids i say put your right arm here and grab the collar they look at me like i'm speaking a totally different language and then some kids get it right away so the the main thing to take away with i find with the kids is at least at the junior levels is fundamentals and basics are the key it's not about teaching them all these different types of guards and things like that we need to teach them base posture structure how to frame how to move our hips you know um how to do proper breakfall, how to do forward roll, ideally eventually learning how to invert even though that's pretty difficult for a child to learn, but you know, rolls and things like that and keeping it more basic I find is is uh you get a lot more out of that and then once they build that foundation and over a few years of training then you can start getting into the really interesting stuff um with the kids, but definitely keeping th- uh you know things like details to a minimum and letting the kids make mistakes is a really big part of their uh development you know it's just like if you're if you're a parent and you you know your schedule is so full you with your kid you you put them in like three different sports they always have something to do every day i don't think that's really good for the kids i think it's yeah. good for a kid to have time to be bored have time to have thoughts to themselves have time to just be free and to play and to uh you know how to just think and and not just be
0: constantly rushing doing stuff um oh man i've got i've got so many thoughts on these topics here i mean uh you know, my, my first thought of course, is if you're teaching your kids about like levers and wedges at that age, they're going to kick ass when they get to grade (laughs) nine and they have to do science. They're going to be so ready for that. How how many kids learn about posture like we tell them we tell kids
1: to stand up straight we don't explain why (laughs) we don't explain why we don't explain that when you do sports your body there's going to be uh you know the, the most effective position for your your limbs and your and your spine for every position that that standing up straight has so much more to do with uh you know um efficiency and effectiveness not just you know just because we're trying to be strict on you but it literally portrays confidence and shows that you're uh, you know that you're ready to take on tasks and and you know it really sends a lot through your body language to who you know future employers things like that so i think kids mm-hmm. should learn about posture structure and base and it, for any sport that they do
0: and just moving forward in life well in- yeah interestingly actually this is a powerful psychological model it's not really something that comes up I, that much in the context of jujitsu but it is true that your actions kind of precede your mindset like if you if you want to have a certain mindset or, or think or feel a certain way the best thing to do is to create the actions that that are basically simulate that behavior because it will come naturally from there so a common example of this of course is i think everyone knows that if you habitually smile, you will be more happier than if you don't. Like, act, the actual act of smiling changes your mindset. And it's similar with posture, right? If you have good posture, in addition to making you better at jujitsu, yeah. it's also going to have the impact of allowing you to project with more confidence. It'll prevent like back problems in the future as well, right? Um, and these are things that you always want to make sure that you're explaining to kids so it doesn't just sound like a bunch of grown-ups telling them what to do. Um, you know, and when you're dealing with kids, I mean, Look, I'm I'm not going to tell you how to raise your kids, except that I absolutely am. Uh, you except know, this is my podcast. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You. So, uh, you know, when, when we're talking about how we should respect people above their positions, you know, put people before their positions, that applies to you as a parent as well, right? Like if you're, if you really are a good parent, you should be tr- teaching your kid to treat everyone with respect and also expect that respect back from other people and that means that you know you shouldn't be yelling at your kid you shouldn't be yeah. freaking out at your kid you should be able to explain to your kid why your kid should be doing something you should be willing to negotiate with your kid and answer your kid's questions um and that that means that you know if especially if you're in a difficult situation like if you're coaching a bunch of kids you don't want to be that instructor who's like yelling at kids or is losing his composure if if you are a if you are losing your composure because of children, you have to ask yourself who's the real child in the room. <laughs> because yeah. because look, if you're not able to control your emotions, then you're maybe you're not maybe the kids aren't the one who are children, right? You know, maybe yeah. it's you. You need to set that example and show them that you're in control of, the, of your emotions and teach them to be in control of their emotions. Because kids are going mean, to em they're going to learn from you, right? If you're not acting like an adult, you can't expect them to so act true. like an adult either.
1: And definitely when I go and teach kids, you know, my my whole thing that I keep telling myself is I'm here to teach them jujitsu they're going to teach me patience so it's really it's a two-way street and and i've learned so much about being a father and being a coach through coaching children it's it's a really uh it's a fulfilling thing and it is really frustrating at times but um you know as from an instructor's point of view it really has benefited me a lot and i can understand how people that are you know really new to the sport and new to sports how they learn different things and little tricks that I can do, little games that I can play to help them learn. It's a really fascinating topic to to think about but be, definitely they're all going to learn at different rates and th- you know you can only go through so much at a time usually in a 45 minute kids class i only teach mm-hmm. one technique usually the rest is filled up with basically live sparring uh drills and then you know usually a game at the end so when you're teaching kids i also have to say that you have to set rewards as well and there's also got to be consequences for um you know things like lack lack of uh, motivation or if they're if they you know not being respectful or, or acting out then there has to be consequences for that you can't just let them get away with it and then you know if everyone trains really well you have to double down and make sure that they really know that you're impressed with them that you're proud that yeah. they tried hard you give them that constructive uh that positive feedback and then you reward
0: them with a game yeah and, and the thing to bear in mind here too is that when you do um you know when you do impose rules and restrictions and and punishments like this they have to be reasonably agreed upon consistent, and they have they have to be something that makes sense right you know if you're just a just a rampant disciplinarian um you know you don't want a situation where kids are afraid of you because you're the authority they need to understand why these rules are in place they need to understand that the rules apply consistently to everybody and they need to understand why the rule you know they need to to some extent agree to the rules as well right you know it's it is a negotiation even though they're children it you know I'm, i'm reminded of the golden rule right you know you you treat others the way that they want to be treated the thing is a lot of the time with children people kind of forget that children are people too they're just at a different developmental stage but all of these mental models that we've discussed apply to children just as well as adults right and you've got to you know put have some empathy and put yourself in this kid's shoes right they've been deposited at this martial arts school that they may not even want to be at they probably had other things that they wanted to do with their day they don't know anyone there they're being asked to do things that are confusing they may be intimidated they're not at the physical developmental stage where they might even be able to do the things that they're being asked to do same with uh, you know cognitive capacity so you've got to put yourself in their shoes and understand that you know they might not be getting they might not be getting difficult because they want to piss you off or anything it could just be that you know it's look th- this is a lot to put on someone who's three to four to five years old right and it's something that you have to have empathy about if you want the kids to really respect you right and you have yeah. to treat them like they're people and you know there is uh you know ca- call me uh
1: I don't know what you want to call me. I feel like teaching boys and girls is there are distinct differences between the sexes i find that girls are really good at following directions they listen they really try hard they try to they try to make you proud as an instructor they want that feedback whereas boys a lot of the time they just go and do whatever they want Mm -hmm. they're they're hard to keep the intention span and and you know i know i know it's the exact same thing inside of school too like in classrooms boys generally want to play in roughhouse and girls you know are more interested in following directions and and doing well and and uh, impressing the instructor so you do have to have patience for the boys and you also have to engage both boys and girls uh you know where where both of them are going to have a good time they're not going to fear you like you said that's one of the main things too i i know kids that have left from other schools and they said that their last instructor was a really mean is what they said Mm -hmm. and i know i know that that instructor was just trying to discipline them but there's a fine line between discipline you know and uh and still having that openness where a child will you know not be afraid to come in they're not i don't want my students to ever fear me right Mm -hmm. like that would be that'd be one of the most horrible things ever i want them to respect me but not more than you know just as much as anyone should be respected Mm -hmm. and uh if they have questions i want them to be able to ask me questions and uh, you know i'm not gonna i don't want to ever respond with anger towards them even however frustrating it
0: can be right so like i say i teach them jujitsu; they teach me patience Mm -hmm. yeah that's a great way of thinking of things so another situation um, coaching at tournaments i mean this is different from everything else we've described so far right in all of these other examples the goal of coaching has been to learn and to help people learn in a tournament capacity your goal is now to help people win and and that's that's quite different right the dynamic is very different you now have this you know there there is now another party involved there is the opponent right and the opponent's team matt this is an area where you have a lot more experience than i do so tell me about this you know when you're when you're dealing with coaching at tournaments how does the situation differ i mean something
1: that i actually struggled with a lot um not gonna lie for the most of my journey i've not been a good coach at tournaments uh you know giving information like giving instruction that i look back on and a lot of the times i cringe (laughs) Mm -hmm. i find just just like teaching kids uh coaching at tournaments sometimes in terms of instruction especially during the match less can be more uh Mm -hmm. usually when i'm competing i only want to hear a few things from my corner and that's going to be uh how much time's left what are the points you know and and then some small little adjustments one thing i don't want to ever hear or say is go for the armbar or you know you got the you got the ankle lock right there you know it's like uh, unless you're literally playing a mind trick with your opponent you're Mm kind of
0: telegraphing the play right so um and really like if you're if your guy doesn't know that to go go for the arm bar like you probably mess something up in training months before right you know it's by the time you get to that point that person should have enough knowledge and enough experience that they can do this stuff on their own right the purpose of coaching should be additive it shouldn't just be to parrot things that are probably going through the person's head already yeah and that, but that's part of what makes coaching hard is like what can you really what value can you really provide the guy you know you're not the one who's got someone trying to break their arm right you know yeah. you're you're the one sitting on the sideline you've got the easy job so what value can you really provide to that person on the mat who with an active competitor who's trying to beat them i guess the main thing you can
1: you you can kind of break it down into three sections as a as a coach uh there's gonna be the pre competition you know the instruction leading up to the competition uh all the stuff in the gym that you do plus the game day how you're gonna get your students' mindset right for for competition and that comes with a lot i find you know if you're if you're not an experienced competitor it's pretty hard to relate to to somebody who's going into a competition tell them how they should be feeling but things like you know don't be uh don't you know don't don't be too nervous don't don't be uh don't be so respectful of your opponent that you you know that you're worried about what they're going to do to you things like this you know get ready for the next match don't be don't blow all your load in one match get ready to fight again be happy to fight again look forward to the next fight rather than just saying to yourself oh my god i want to go home i want the stress to be all over right because that's a that's a losing mindset for sure so there's the pre-competition mindset there's the during the competition coaching that's going to happen during the match and then there's going to be the follow-up post-competition coaching that where we're going to debrief we're going to talk about things that were done well things that were done wrong during the matches things that we can improve upon for next time because if you don't have those three stages um you're, you're it's just you're missing opportunities to improve from mistakes and whatnot so and then you know during a match usually the only things i uh, that i usually talk about are score time uh Basically, things that are relative to alignment, and and a lot of the time, I think what would what would Rob be yelling at me right now? Most of the time, he's yelling me to get my toes live, right? And and even up until brown belt, I'm finding myself competing, and I hear him yelling, "Live toes, man!" I'm like, "Oh man, jeez, I'm a brown belt. I should know this by now." And and having a coach that's receptive to little details like that are super important and like i said having a coach that's yelling at you to go for the kimura is not necessarily great coaching right he he, the information needs to be concise it needs to be effective it needs to be swift and it needs to it needs to really relate to the 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 most necessary task at hand needed to win the competition Mm -hmm. sometimes the the best goal is stay low stay tight you got 20 seconds on the clock just kill the clock mm-hmm. like that you know so a coach that's at a tournament that understands how the game is played instead of looking at jiu-jitsu as a fight is probably the more effective coach because it is played like a game at the highest levels it's not necessarily the most dangerous grappler that wins a competition it's the one who knows how to play the game so if you un- have a firm understanding of the points and of, the, of a strategy as a coach you could probably give a lot more better information to someone in a competition than someone who's got a bunch of street fights right mm-hmm. uh it's just it's just a totally different style of fighting that's really important to understand and then as a uh, post-competition instructor when the matches are all over and you know maybe your student won maybe they're lost uh if if they lose it's going to be easier to find things that they did wrong if they blow through all their opponents, then there's going to be less to learn because they they had such an amazing showing or or you know all the students that they fought sucked. <laughs> if you want to put it that way it's going to be harder to find mistakes, but it's always important to think about you know even even when i've won competitions I've come right off the mat and then Rob instantly started telling me things that I did wrong <laughs> and i'm like wow that's uh you know it's it's kind of hard to hear right now because I want to hear praise i want to ha- I want to be uh, validated, but at the same time, like that is what really makes you learn is uh having those things pointed out to you and um, you know the last the last thing I can recommend is always try to get your matches on tape uh, that's one of the best things you can do as a competitor is watch your own matches especially when you lose if you're losing competitions and you're not filming yourself and watching tape you're just you're missing out on crucial uh, you know that that's a really big opportunity to learn and for god's sakes get two different people To hold the camera and to coach, you do not want your coach yelling instructions into a camera. That competition
0: footage will not age well. I saw some amazing tournament footage a while ago where the same guy was coaching as was recording, and he was just screaming into the phone, and like the (laughs) audio was going out. You couldn't hear anything. It sounded like static. It was just absolutely brutal. (laughs) Yeah, and and from a competitor point of view, just on a side note, there's things
1: that you want your cameraman to think about. So. You know, I. whenever someone films my matches, I always want to make sure that they have an angle where the referee's table or, or the judge's table isn't really obstructing your vision. And also things like you know don't stop filming until someone's hand gets raised so that it doesn't get stopped part way through just little things like that um it's pretty easy to make mistakes when you're trying to film matches so if, if competition footage is valuable to you and you want to you know you want to put your stuff out there on social media definitely consider how your matches
0: are being filmed and like i said get your coach to be separate from the cameraman you know one thing that i really took out of this conversation is that the coaching that you do at tournaments does not just mean the coaching that you do while the match is happening there is a significant amount of prep that you do beforehand and there's a significant amount of debriefing that you do after with the intent of improving for next time and this reminds me of the conversation we had in past episodes about kaizen the the process of continuous improvement where regardless of whether you had a good day or a bad day on the mat you talk about what went well you talk about what didn't and you work you work on improving it's not about wallowing in defeat or celebrating your victory every time you compete it's an opportunity to get more feedback and to use that to get better next time so i I really like the example you gave about how you know you're you step off the mat and you won and rather than having a big celebration you're immediately having the the same conversation you would have had even if you lost which is how can i do better next time and i think that's not even just for jujitsu, but for any endeavor in life that's such a fundamental mindset to have if you want to improve over time and i yeah and i think competitors put a lot of emphasis on i got to win this tournament i got to win this
1: competition and of course it, it should mean a lot to you if you're a serious competitor but um, there's always going to be more tournaments there's always going to be more competitions and you're only really remembered for your last you know tournament unless unless you're just some big shot who wins every time and you're expected to win so uh it more more importantly is moving forward the adjustments that can be made in competition because that really is the uh the most realistic feedback you will get is competing um and being able to take that take the knowledge that you you get from the last tournament and applying it moving forward is going to be uh you know super beneficial for
0: anyone who's serious about competing so i guess one other thing to talk about is teaching seminars how do you convince a bunch of idiot white belts to pay 150 (laughs) bucks to watch you do arm
1: bars (laughs) uh yeah uh you know seminars are really fun and uh, i i get a really big kick out of doing seminars and um You know i guess i guess we'll discuss this more when we're talking about actually building your brand and building uh jujitsu as a business and how you can acquire seminars and things like that but um you know like i said before i i basically try not to be an ass i try not to try not to embarrass myself especially when i'm at a another school I want to I want to portray myself uh you know it's a presentation even when the seminar is not going on uh one of the worst things you can do is not be sociable you know I've I've been to certain seminars I go there and the guys just sitting off to the side on his phone doesn't say a word to anyone and then the seminar starts and he you know he starts doing his stuff I like to talk to people I like to you know every time you go to a tournament every time you go to a, a seminar or you go to a visiting gym you're marketing yourself um and you're you're networking and that's a really important thing Thing if you make your money through jujitsu. So when I go to seminars, I want people to leave thinking not not that they you know I mean I want them to learn I want them to but I want them to come away thinking Hey Matt's a really cool guy or Hey he's you know he's 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 good at teaching he's good at whatever he, that he taught but he's also a really cool guy to be around I think I'd like to go train with him sometime or I think I'd like to maybe have him at my school for a seminar. Those are the kind of little hidden secrets that will get you uh, you know that will get you well known and will get you uh, possible seminar opportunities in the future not just
0: i'm here to teach a class and then i'm gonna go um, so one time i went to a seminar hosted by carlos gracie jr which is a pretty big name to have at a seminar and they left 30 minutes at the end for q a so we we finished the movie that we're showing and at, and at, at the end um you know we start started the q a and the first thing that, that carlos says is okay so ask whatever you want but let's not talk about jiu-jitsu i don't want to talk about jujitsu. we can talk about that anytime so ask me about anything not related to jiu-jitsu and it's like well great <laughs> you know i dropped all this money i'm sitting here with this dude what am i going to ask this man that has nothing to do with jiu-jitsu like what did you have for breakfast what was the last book you read like it was, it was really really weird He was trying to get all personable but really it's like dude we're here to learn we're here to learn jiu-jitsu don't get me wrong it was a really good seminar and he, he was actually an awesome guy but i just thought that was so funny um great hoist grace wants to kill you now <laughs> if hoist gracie (laughs) wants to come on this podcast and talk about mental models you are more than invited please come on this podcast and talk about mental models (laughs) and why we're wrong so um, whenever i'm in a situation where i'm teaching to a group outside of the norm you know i kind of look back at what's worked for me in the past when i've been to seminars and what hasn't and some people when they do seminars they want you know their thought is well i want to show something new that you've never seen before so so they show some weird exotic low percentage technique that no one's ever going to use and um you know it's just that you don't really get anything out of it so whenever i'm teaching to a new group i try not to go down that road what i prefer to do is pick some very basic fundamental concept that people probably haven't thought about in the detail that they need to think about that that has made a big difference to me and then i focus on that instead of any particular move i mean to To give an example, Matt, one of the more recent times when I I taught outside of my school, um, I all I did was I talked about like the elbow-knee connection. And I talked about that for like a whole class because there's enough there that applies to different areas of jujitsu that you can just walk through that over and over again. And I'm pretty sure that most people haven't thought about it in depth to the extent that that we did that day. So that's kind of the approach that I like to take. You know, rather than trying to drop some weird exotic thing that you're just gonna forget about as soon as you leave, I, I try to come up with something that is fundamental but maybe from a different lens than what people have thought about before
1: yeah no and and teaching teaching at seminars i mean uh, some people you know they do uh it's like two hours of of instruction and then it's a pictures and then you know you go i i like seminars much more where uh usually you roll at the end or have have a chance to to blow off some steam because i find the, the worst thing you can do at a seminar is learn for two hours sit there and then you don't get to train yeah yeah so it's really important that you get that physical output in there as well and and usually during the seminar when uh when we're when i teach I, i like to show a few drills and make sure that people get their bodies moving i don't like seminars where you're just sitting and watching and then just mm-hmm. trying. I want people to actually get involved and be able to, to do some drills. And then, and then I like to add some live elements too. So maybe we'll do like, let's say it's a leg lock seminar. We'll do leg pummeling and then we'll go live from that position, just getting the inside position for, you know, five, 10 minutes and then people can get warm that way and they get a deeper understanding of the concepts uh behind leg pummeling and then when i move on to the next step even if they're brand new to leg locks they understand certain things that they need to know as a foundation before we move on to the next step um, and also knowing it's just like teaching uh adults or kids knowing when to scale things back and when to not teach too much uh that's something that that's actually the biggest challenge as an instructor that i have is teaching less because yeah. you want it you want to teach as much as you can but in the end it it, it kind of spoils the presentation if you if you do that yeah. so it's, it's mm-hmm. important to to really focus on like you said the basics and and focus on um mi- being a little bit of a minimalist and then definitely always giving people the opportunity to roll at the mm-hmm. end i think is uh really fundamental
0: yeah this is something that at, at seminars is often a kind of a challenge is that there's so much information presented that none of it really gets retained or used and when i go to a seminar i would rather cover one thing that I'll retain and use rather than cover half a dozen things that I will immediately forget right Uh, and the problem is in order to recover to retain and learn one thing you need to go super in-depth in that one thing to the point where some people in in the seminar might not like it but it's it's a matter of like what do you what do you like versus what do you need (laughs) you know a lot of people hate like drilling the same thing for 10-20 minutes but the reality is you're going to learn a lot better if you do that rather than having like just a smorgasbord of random techniques it's much better to pick one thing and deep dive into it even if some people in the, cl- the class don't like that approach you know it's and yet, granted you want to kind of play the crowd and you want to give people what they want but you also want people to understand that they're going to learn more if you can deep dive into a single thing and that's it's hard to do i mean i remember that the last seminar that we did with your instructor matt it was like a two and a half hour seminar where we did one move and i thought that was awesome i really like that approach Uh, on the note of rolling after a seminar i get why most why a lot of people don't do this you know a lot of the seminars i've been to recently it's like you you cover a few techniques you bang out some reps and then you're done and there's no rolling and i understand why they do that right you know when you're paying a, a lot of money for a seminar some people might get testy if they're paying to basically roll i understand that but the reality is number one ultimately we're training jujitsu right (laughs) Uh, we should be we should be rolling number two this is a great opportunity to get some kinetic experience with the move that we just practiced and and number three this might be the only opportunity you get to train with some of these people you know and and not even i'm not even talking about the person doing the seminar usually when you have a a, a seminar that means that you're going to get guests that you don't normally get this might be your the only chance you get to train with some of these people and getting exposed to new ideas and new styles is one of the The best ways to grow. So really i i think that when you go to a seminar getting the opportunity to roll with all of those different people is probably just as valuable as whatever they're teaching at the seminar itself mm-hmm. and and one thing rob does before every every seminar
1: whether it's the uh, you know a leg lock or nogi de or wh- whatever he's teaching he always starts off clarifying posture structure based so that everyone <laughs> everyone in the room you know if he has to spend five or ten minutes going over it, he will most by now almost everyone in the area has heard of the system but just to explain the language he's going to use like frames wedges levers all those things because that's going to help him pass information throughout the whole seminar when he uses this type of language so it's really important to get everyone on the same base so that when i say posture everyone knows i'm talking about the alignment of the spine when i say base everyone knows i'm talking about you know how i'm connected uh with you know to be able to get hip movement uh with my connection to the ground or my
0: opponent right so it's it's important to clarify language especially when you teach uh conceptually like rob does i like how at that seminar that we did the first thing rob said to the group was okay does everyone know about my posture structure base shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah. everyone's like yeah yes we've heard this a yeah. million times yeah. but that's good though because now th- they're
1: they're so sick of it that they they can't help but understand it
0: yeah. So at yeah, least yeah. they know it, right? Yeah. Cool. So just to quickly recap, I think that was a really good chat about coaching. Um, in terms of the topics we covered, we talked about going from practitioner to coach. We talked about teaching class. We talked about one on one instruction. We talked about coaching children. We talked about coaching tournaments and we talked about teaching seminars. In terms of the mental models we talked about, we talked about beginner's mind, meaning being open and receptive to new ideas, approaching every situation as if you a beginner especially important when you're the instructor we talked about psychological safety meaning making sure that you have an environment where people are willing to open up and ask questions and challenge you and not be afraid of reprisal or being made fun of We talked about how you should respect people over positions. Uh, It's more important to respect people at a human level than to get caught up in authority or rank. We talked about incremental learning, meaning, you know, breaking down knowledge piecemeal and giving people knowledge when they're ready for it rather than trying to cram it all in at once. We talked about learning styles, especially important if you're doing one-on-one instruction, understanding that not everybody learns the same way we talked about uh, the golden rule meaning treat others the way that you would want to be treated very important always but you when dealing with children it's important especially because you need to empathize with what it's like to be a child and understand why they might be acting the way they are and we talked about kaizen the approach to continuous improvement where regardless of whether you win or you lose you go through the same loop you you measure what you did you uh you get feedback on what you did and you analyze how you could be better for the next time i think that was a really productive chat matt um i got a question here that we can talk about yep so we were asked by a new blue belt um what are some mini games that can be played to quickly develop my game for example grip fighting games to get and remove grips what other ways can i build a foundational strategy so that i'm not trying to do random techniques but instead working a consistent game with clear objectives
1: well if you're going to look for games and uh Little games and, and, uh, like micro battles that you can use to sort of program yourself. I'd recommend checking out, uh, what Rob calls Fuck Your Jiu Jitsu, which is basically target sparring, except somebody has, uh, puts a handicap on themselves. So for example, if I'm, if I'm, uh, doing Fuck Your Jiu Jitsu and my goal is to get better at active basing and maintaining top position, then my opponent, I'm basically just gonna walk into my opponent's guard let them have the guard of their choice let them have grips of their choice and let them try and sweep me Uh, i'm not going to go for submissions or passes i'm literally just trying to base out and prevent my opponent from sweeping me so uh and you can check this out on youtube it's on the uh, rob bernacki online academy i'm sure there's tons of uh, footage out there of rob explaining what this is Uh, it's basically just a target sparring where we remove um we remove a uh, a portion of the training so that you maximize the repetitions with um in a live scenario but your target sparring it in such a way that you don't have to worry about getting submitted or anything for example another one is if you're doing guard retention one thing rob does is you'll be on the bottom maintaining guard uh and the person on top is trying to pass your guard and all you're allowed to do is guard retention movements so you're not allowed to grip up and put your opponent in lasso but what you are allowed to do is as they try and pass you're allowed you're not allowed to make grips but you are allowed to do hip escapes inversions uh top stepping uh you know any type of guard retention movement, and as a result, your guard retention becomes a lot better. Um, and focusing more on that rather than focusing on sweeps and submissions. So you're really just taking uh, a target target sparring scenario and maximizing the repetitions in a live setting that would be my recommendation
0: yeah we're essentially talking about training handicaps here if there's something that you want to focus the easiest way to do that is to remove all of the other aspects of jiu-jitsu so that the game you're playing only focuses on that um, an example that i like to do because uh, i you know i feel that most people neglect the engagement phase of guard they just don't, you know most people don't really play the grip game intelligently to give people a chance to play that one thing I like to do is have my guys you know start from guard. And rather than focusing on you know normally the way that people do guard drills is um, as soon as someone passes or sweeps or gets a submission then you reset um, the way that i like to play it is as soon as someone gets their grips and is able to hold those grips for like three seconds you reset and by doing that by basically removing passes sweeps and submissions so that the only thing in the training scenario is grip fighting it forces people to engage in that capacity and that's a that's a good strategy if there's something that you specifically want to work just create a rule set for jiu-jitsu that removes everything that is not what you want to work on
1: exactly it would be like it would be like i want to work my engagement phase from the uh seated position and then we just go live well what if my opponent immediately passes my guard and we we're, we just keep going live i'm not going to get any grip fighting training out of that now if he passes my guard uh or or you know if he's not allowed to pass my guard and we're literally just fighting for grips or whatnot then we're going to maximize the repetitions of of getting grips seeing what happens when i grab certain grips seeing what you know what what reactions i can generate by doing certain things it's going to be much more concentrated uh pertaining to my goals of the engagement phase rather than you know just basically just sparring right so i think that uh fuck your jiu-jitsu is a really great tool to use and and can be used really well as a warm-up as well i
0: think the name's dumb but other <laughs> than that <laughs> uh, I, I think that another thing though that you need to that we need to caution is you want to make sure that whatever drills you're setting up here um, whatever training programs you've got you want to make sure that you're not removing or altering the rules of jujitsu to the point where you're going to get bad habits like the most common example i can think of is how everyone starts on their knees when rolling it's like hey look i mean i i get it i understand it but the reality is you're creating bad habits that are unrealistic for actual sparring right i mean at the bare minimum if you want to play that game i i suggest at the bare minimum start from like the alley and oki position where one person is knee on the ground and the other person is standing up that i can live with because at least that could actually come up in a, in a combat scenario but with both people starting on their knees like come on you know I, I mean yes you've removed some aspect of the game but you've done so in a way that's actually probably going to hurt you in the long run so just be mindful of that when you're when you're kind of altering the rules of the game to target spar understand that it's possible to do that in a way that might help you in one place but hurt you in others yeah great point Steve. And was there another part of that question that we needed to address i think that was it Cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you again, guys. Great talk, Matt. Um this is probably going to be the first part of a longer series where we talk about um kind of the aspects of coaching and team building and gym building. Um I'm thinking that, you know, this episode we went pretty in-depth about coaching. I'm thinking that the the next one we'll probably talk about uh, a more broader, more broader concept surrounding how to build a quality team and then after that, uh, probably at least one episode about the aspects of starting a gym and running a gym as a full-time business cool can't wait guys and uh keep your questions and comments coming really appreciate the support absolutely take care